We acknowledge the traditional custodians of this land throughout Australia and recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging. One of the biggest things is to get clarity about vision and purpose and why you're doing what you're doing. And a lot of people really don't have that. And when we get some clarity of purpose, we actually free up space to think creatively. And it doesn't matter whether it's a large corporate or it's a small family business, getting that clarity is just as important in both cases. And it's not just that it's a feel good, it's actually profitable. This is the Big Shift for Small Farms podcast. G'day listeners, I'm your host, Edgar Greste. You know, there's a saying that we overestimate what we can achieve in a year and underestimate what we can achieve in 10. So we're kicking off season two with farm planning principles and asking, where are you headed? We often think of a plan as a list of things to do, but the farmers and consultants in this episode say it's about outlining your principles and developing a clear vision. Rigid plans don't always allow us to take advantage of emerging opportunities and respond to the changing environment. So in this episode, we'll hear about the importance of stepping back to listen to the land and connect with the country so our management decisions can evolve. Well, first of all, we need to know why we're in farming and what it is that we're actually aiming to do with the resource that we're going to be working with. That's James Barnett. He's an advisor at Resource Consulting Services, providing education and training to the agricultural sector. It's my belief that many farmers have grown into a process and into a plan that's been inherited historically. Too often we're limited by history in everything we do on our farms and we need to open our mind to the whole process of what are the opportunities that are out there to utilise this to the very best degree that we can. What RCS in the business that I work for, we teach as principles and it's about the fact that principles we can adopt and adapt to suit our circumstances. They're not rules and in many cases uh, rules are made not to be broken. So we can adopt and adapt the principles. We talk about the three-legged pot and one of those legs is production, one leg is business and one leg is land. And if one of those legs, production, land and business, aren't in balance, the pot falls over, doesn't it? It's about balance in everything that we do. I think that we as humans like to put structure around everything and we like to believe that we're in control. And if we actually sit back and observe how the animals work the country, if we sit back and observe how the water flows and moves across our landscape, if we start to put those observations into place with whatever it is that we plan to do, whether it's about planting tree lines, whether it's about putting fences and roads and structures in place, what is the most appropriate position that we will put these in? Because quite often we like things to be nice and neat and tidy, and unfortunately, nature isn't tidy. Nature is quite a messy creature, and we need to think and work in that open space. 
My name is David Carr. I'm an ecological consultant. I run a business called Stringy Bark Ecological, based in Armidale in New South Wales. A lot of my work is looking at where that sweet spot is between production and conservation. So where you can have a productive block of land, but do it in such a way that it doesn't necessarily wipe out the natural environment on your property. We use the term ecosystem services to talk about the goods and services that nature provides to us as humans free of charge. And often those services are for things that we don't even we don't even think about, we take for granted, like clean air, like the production of oxygen, like the formation of soils, filtration of water, pollination of our, our fruit trees and control of pest insects. So having a good balance between nature and production on your farm ensures that you'll maximise your ecosystem services and still get production. Do you have any sort of first principles that you would go to in terms of discussions around whole farm planning? First, you've got to know what you're working with. What are the biophysical parameters you're working within? So what's your land like? What's your climate like? What vegetation might be there already? What infrastructure might you already have on your property? The second aspect is understanding the enterprise that you're going into. So you need to know the requirements of the particular enterprise you're interested in. It's no use being interested in growing citrus trees if you live at Goulburn because citrus trees are very frost sensitive and so you can plant as much as you like but you're not going to easily grow oranges at Goulburn because the frost will take them out in the first winter. Those two aspects work closely together. Some of your biophysical constraints are are limiting to what enterprises you can do and sometimes just the size of your property might limit the enterprise you do. So you've got to have a fairly clear idea of both those factors. David suggests writing down a list of what you're working with on the land and talking to consultants or organisations like local land services to get clear about your enterprise needs. And once you've done your homework, then you can start getting creative and mapping it all out. I suggest that one of the first things you do is get yourself a printed aerial photo and you can get overlay paper, which is like a clear transparent plastic layer, and you can put those overlays on and you can mark on your aerial photo where all these things are. Where are your dams? Where's your house? Where's your roads? Where's your existing fences? Where's your patches of bushland? Where do the winds come from? Where's the neighbour that you want to block out? All those sorts of things. On your aerial photo, you you create another layer, another sheet of plastic that where you start planning the future farm, where you put I want to move that fence over there. So you draw the new fence in. You look at where your problems are. So where the, where's the erosion patch or the salt patch that you've got to deal with? Where do I need a shelter belt to protect my trees from the wind? And you, you mark all those sorts of things in on your farm plan. And then you can start prioritising. You can say, well, I'm going to start the cattle enterprise. There's no yards. That's the first thing I need. Uh, so you can start then budgeting for those things and and planning for those things. And the beauty of an aerial photo with these plastic overlays is you can change it all the time. You don't have to, it's not a thing that's that's set in stone. And I've I've known people who've kept it on the back of the door and every time they go out, they'll tweak something or fiddle with something on there. Now for the tech savvy, there's an app for that too. And once you've mapped things out, the next step is categorising and prioritising all this information. 
one of the approaches we use in, in this sort of planning is threats and assets idea. So you firstly, you look at your assets. Now, that can be assets from the point of view of production. So it might be that you've got a really good dam that's fed by a spring somewhere, or you've got a really good boundary fence. And on the contrary to that, you have threats or problems. So that might be that the, the main gate is um, falling off its hinges or the, uh, the dam that you rely on for water is, is leaky. So you can identify what's a plus and what's a minus on, on there from a production point of view. But you can also do that from, for conservation. And this is where you can get some advice, for example, from local land services about the sort of special animals or plants or ecological communities you might have on your farm and where they're located and then you can start to understand what they require in order to persist. Now, if you've got good, healthy patches of native vegetation, that should be seen as an asset because it's very hard to replace once it's gone and also very expensive to replace once it's gone. So marking some of these things on your aerial photo as assets sort of tells you that they're special areas that you need to really look after and maintain while you're doing your improvements or developments elsewhere. People can be sometimes overwhelmed by planning. There's two parts. There's the sort of creative thinking part, but then there's also the hard yakker of gathering the relevant information that you need. Have you got any advice for people about, you know, how to overcome any overwhelm? Well, firstly, I I think don't try and bite off too much at at once. I have seen people where they're trying to plan, you know, the next 25 years of, uh, of their operations and and get it all onto a map, and most of the time, hardly any of it gets gets implemented. So, start with the essentials, and that's where understanding the enterprise that you're in or going to go into is really important. What's really critical for your enterprise? Water is one of the main things. If you've got livestock irrigation, if you're looking at horticulture, good pastures. If you if you're looking at some sort of grazing enterprise, if you've got existing vegetation. Get some advice on that vegetation, you know, what it is, how important it is, how you manage it. You might have weeds in your uh, your pastures or your native vegetation. Some of those weeds will be really critical that you need to get onto them or they'll take over your whole place. Other weeds are not so important. They, they're just going to be a minor part of your, of your land. So getting good advice, I think, is one thing. There's plenty of uh, people like me out there who can do that. There's plenty of government agencies and community programs like Landcare that can give you that sort of advice. So tap into what resources you've got around you to get help. Use that assets and threats approach to to prioritise things so that you're working on the really important things first and then the rest of the stuff becomes a job for when you've got a bit more time or when you've taken care of the really important business first. Is there anything that you would recommend people to go out and do and any actions that people might take? Well, I think the first action is to go and get yourself an aerial photo and uh, start scribbling on that. That's an easy one and a fun thing to do as well. The other thing is to go out and walk or drive around your property and have a look at from the perspective of both conservation and production, what are the interactions that are occurring? So think, how are those trees affecting that pasture? How is that bare ground over there affecting the water quality in my creek? How are those rabbits affecting the, the soil stability? Try and look at interactions between things. And I think that opens your eyes a little bit more to how things work together and takes away that simple idea that you can just get rid of something and it won't have an effect on something else. And it stops you rushing in and doing major changes without being well prepared first. 
We need to think of our, our properties as an agricultural ecosystem, which means all of the living things, including the humans and the cattle and the sheep and the, the wildlife, are interacting with the, with the natural environment. And it's all about the flows of energy and nutrients and water through the system and making the most of those flows through the system in order to make it into a productive area while still you know, retaining the, the nature there that drives it. Hi, I'm Kirsty Hambrook. And I'm Andrew Hambrook. And we're at Terroir Farm, which is in Kangaroo Valley, which is two hours south of Sydney. We have a, a, what we call a, a mixed enterprise farm here. We have a, a small market garden on about half an acre, a mixed species orchard. We run a fat lamb production and then we have a few uh, other little elements. We have chickens, we have geese, uh, berry orchard, lots of other little things and um, encompassing all of that we are actually now a farm stay property. So we have accommodation here as a, uh, a little slow food holiday experience for folk from the city to come and experience um, what life could be like. <laughs> and if you had to sort of give yourselves a, a title on the business card, what would it be? A title? <laughs> Jack of all trades? I don't know. Slave worker. No. <laughs> There's so many hats, that's the problem with, with diversity. It, yeah, I always tend to bite off just a little bit more than I can chew. And uh, yeah, it always means multiple hats. And you're the hat rack? <laughs> Look, we're really just uh, family free, just enjoying life and yeah, trying to live simply. We've been farming for precisely six years <laughs> since we got here with uh, yeah, no experience and, and no training. So yeah, that's what, I was, what, what could possibly go wrong, really? Have you still got your L-plates on the front gate? Well, we try and hide them. We were living in Sydney just before coming to Kangaroo Valley and the birth of our son sort of made me quite interested in organic food in particular. I was growing my own veggie plot back at home in Sydney and um, one thing led to another and I did a, a permaculture design certificate in 2012. That was what really led me to believe that it was possible that we could start with small slow solutions and we could actually build something from the ground up without you know too much experience without being a generational farmer so yeah it really gave me the leap to just to really find that piece of land we'd been looking for and get started and just do it now kind of thing. Tell me the kinds of enterprises that you're running here like what was the evolution of your vision you know moving out to the farm we were running quite a large hotel in sydney immediately before we came here and there was a real disconnect with our guests that stayed with us so we we're always looking for that sort of intimate experience with our guests so you know so you got the time to actually get to know people and stuff like that so the idea of a farm stay was perfect for that so obviously to have a farm stay we have to do some sort of farming and um you know, we're passionate about, you know, organic food and all that, so the the garden was a no-brainer, really. Um, and then, you know, we throw in some, you know, cows and sheep and chickens and all that, and all of a sudden you've got this, you know, wonderful experience for people. We did a plan. We spent the first 12 months after buying the land pretty much doing no farming here. We sat here and we bought ourselves a, a book of grid paper and stack it all together so that we had a, a two-scale map of the land and we purposefully sort of sat. We, we watched when the rain happened and where it flowed and how it infiltrated. We looked at soil. Some of the problems became evident early on, so we knew we had a pretty big wind exposure. We suddenly found we had a massive fireweed 
weed infestation in the pastures so things like that sort of happened and we were able to sort of go okay well this needs to be this size in this place and you know nutrient moves downhill so those things were purposefully planned and then other things just happened along the way <laughs> and it got a little bit out of hand perhaps. And I'm interested in the permaculture, you sort of explored that through a course. Can you talk to me a little bit about how that influenced the evolution of the enterprises that you've got going on here? The biggest thing with the permaculture course was it just gave me the confidence to get started, that it was very much about you know, start where you are, do what you can, sort of sort of ethos. But also those, you know, breaking it down into the, the permaculture ethics, I suppose, or principles. There were a lot of them that really resonated with us. So, I mean, diversity has always been a big thing for me and knowing, uh, <laughs> I'm just laughing now looking at Andrew going, too much diversity. Yeah, it drives him a bit crazy. Stop adding things. I keep telling him diversity builds resilience. <laughs> Complexity is good. I keep but, telling him to just slow down just one thing at a time. You know? <laughs> Let's get through all the jobs we've got to get through first, but yeah. We do have a lot of unfinished projects. It's a bit of an occupational hazard. But it did give us that confidence and also to know that we were on the right track with our thinking, that it was really important to, to make a start and to get things done. So for me in particular, this place evolved into more of a food production uh, business than what we perhaps thought it would be at the start. <laughs> we thought uh, we Andrew's were... <laughs> nodding politely, yes. We, we did think we would have a small veggie patch to feed our family and the tourists that would stay here and a bit of surplus. We, we okay, now... and, and, and having said that, we're standing in the middle of quite a large kitchen garden. I must admit, if this is the size of your kitchen garden, I can't wait to see how big your kitchen is. <laughs> yeah, it did get a little bit out of control. We're, we're currently feeding about... Well, it varies widely, but about 35 families a week in the local area. We have an online store, so we sell uh, everything here online, but we also um, have a collaborative approach, and that's one of the things we learned um, when I did the permaculture design certificate, was that you don't want to be self-sufficient, you want community self-sufficiency. So, yeah, we, uh, we also sell um, from the local beef producer, local pork producer, bakers, fermenters, other veggie growers, fruit growers, the whole lot. We have quite a range of things that we provide a one-stop shop online um, and we package everything here and deliver it twice a week just offering an opportunity that we ourselves would like so fresh organic food locally grown minimally processed whole foods just getting our diets right our lifestyle right and our connection with community right so with the other growers but also our customers who really value the opportunity to have this here as part of their plan to farm organically and keep food production local Kirsty and Andrew have also incorporated animals as a tool for regenerating the landscape. We started off, we bought a small chicken caravan that would, that would fit to 130 so that we could do pastured free-range eggs. That was always sort of the plan because we learned pretty quickly that the fertility of our soil was was fairly rubbish and we thought okay well here's a good opportunity it's something pretty simple to get into it, it was something we could you know grasp the concept of fairly easily we actually have stopped doing that now because one thing we didn't factor in was the number of kills we would have from wedgetail eagles so we were losing chickens every week so we've actually decided that we can't keep a flock of chickens safe out on pasture so that has stopped we also have friends across the river that have 8,000 laying hens so you know we we collaborate with them in Instead, to provide really fresh, healthy, pastured, free-range eggs for our customers, for our guests, for ourselves. So we feel that we don't really need to, you know, 
double up on things like that. The sheep on the other hand, they were the next things we added and they were definitely something that uh, we realised we needed once we were here. It wasn't something we planned on. In fact, when we first started to build fences, we didn't build them for sheep, we built them for cows. I really like cows, I just wanted a couple of house cows. Uh, so we put in some cattle fencing and uh, yeah, then we, we saw how big the fireweed problem here was. And knowing that we didn't want to use any chemicals on the property, we started looking at ways that we might be able to alleviate the, the weed problem with the fireweed. And a little bit of research brought up the fact that actually sheep and goats are really good at, at getting rid of the problem. And looking around here, this was a sea of yellow the summer after we moved in. You know, there's a little bit of fireweed still in places where the sheep don't access, but it's it's been brilliant, it's been amazing, and now we have a lamb production business as well as one of our layers. Reflecting on things, is there anything that you would change or reapproach? Would you take a different tact knowing everything you know now? I don't think we could have known everything we know now without taking that approach. So that's the one thing we've really learned is that all the lessons are learned in the hard times. We lost our hot house, our propagation house, when the fire came through in January. So we, we need to rebuild a hot house so that we can start propagating seedlings for the market garden. But we don't want to be using any energy to heat that greenhouse. We don't have any grid connection here. We're totally off grid. All of our power comes from the sun. <laughs> Not today, however. Backup generator thank you um, and you know we do process our own waste we collect our own water so we really try and be very self-sufficient here so we don't want to be heating a greenhouse in order to get tomato seedlings up in July when they need to be in the greenhouse so the, the plan from from my end is to take these meat chickens and have them overnight in the hothouse which will provide body heat from the chickens in order to, to keep the greenhouse at a nice temperature, also provide protection for the chickens and warmth and shelter from rainy days, and then to be able to let those chickens out into the orchard during the daytime to, to get all the you know coddling moth and, and slaters and earwigs and hair and cherry slug that may be overwintering in the, in the soil beneath the trees of the orchard. So we're trying to sort of go, okay, well, this one element could actually solve pest problems in the orchard, could provide heating for our greenhouse, could provide meat for our own table. And also, you know, once we've cleaned out where the chickens have been roosting each night, you know, that can then go into a worm farm and be applied back onto the gardeners as good compost or fertilizer. So it's those kind of things that are, you know, it hasn't happened yet. We're getting there. We still haven't rebuilt a lot of, a lot of infrastructure after the fire. But it's that sort of thinking that evolves as you're going along. When you see a problem or you see a gap that needs to be filled, is how can you take that one element and give it many uses? Planning is a constantly evolving process. And when we work with nature, our plans need to be adaptable. In 2020, Terawa Farm was hit by the bushfires. But out of the destruction and grief came some surprising opportunities. What's happened since the fire has been really interesting. So at the back of our property that was totally burnt out, there's 50 acres out there where um, all of a sudden we've got native grasses coming through. We've got a whole, uh, there's probably 10 acres or, or more, 15 acres of microlina that we've never seen on the property before and it's just sprung up. And as you can see, we've got a number of cleared paddocks. They're all separated by little creek lines that run down the property. So the cleared pastured area out the back there, nothing ever really of substance grew before the fires. The kangaroos and the wombats used to keep it pretty much down. But with all the potash that came from the fires and the rain afterwards, it just exploded in growth. And so the microlina just 
you know, shot up everywhere and just covered all the all the cleared land out the back. Can you describe what microlina looks like? Like when you first saw it, what did it look different to the grasses that were there? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, first of all, it was um, you know probably half a meter high, and we've never had anything like that here. So, you know, if we can get ten centimeters growth, it's been good out the back. We had somebody come on the land that were actually feeding native animals, and they first said to us, "Hey." have you seen what's growing out the back here? And we're like, yeah, we saw it, but we don't know what it is. And he said, well, that's microlina. We're like, wow, that's microlina. So we were pretty excited to find that it was there. It was something we'd observed, but didn't really understand. So having that extra person who knew exactly what it was and what it, you know, what the benefits of it was. So we we're actually just speaking to an indigenous organization at the moment for them to come and wild harvest the seed of that native grass to be able then to use that in, in production so that they can plant it onto to more arable lands where it's in a more controlled environment. They can take that seed, they can then go into full production, food production of indigenous foods. So we're working with them at the moment. They're about to start harvesting next month and hope to, to take maybe 20 kilos of seed off that paddock. So we're very open to that kind of cultural experience, to the learning that we can, we can get from somebody who knows about indigenous foods. This seed just arrived after the fire. It was amazing. We'd, we'd never seen it, we'd heard about it. I'd actually tried to buy seed and it is so expensive I just did couldn't do it because I thought wow this is the seed I really want on my farm and then we turned around and we're like it just appeared out of nowhere so and the other thing that's happened in, in out the front as well we've got kangaroo grass and wallaby grass coming in perennial native species that we've just never seen on the property before just the conditions were right that it's laid dormant in the soil for who knows how long and then uh, just having that that fire come through just stimulated the soil and then we got quite a lot of rain this year so it's interesting to see what's come through naturally and it gives us a lot more perspective on on how this land maybe ought to be managed. There's so much we don't understand. We don't have an appreciation for the complexity of nature. Her resilience is just remarkable. And if you allow yourself to just be a part of it, to just to witness it, but also to stop making it difficult for Mother Nature to do her job, it's very humbling to see something like that, to see this really important grass species just suddenly appear. But you realise it was there all along. It was obviously there all along, we just didn't know it. You know, it's nature's cycle, so uh, the fire's brought out so many, there's so many things out the back, there's so many things growing that just we've never seen before, and they all have their place. So it's, I guess for us it's just trying to understand what that place is. I was fortunate to meet a Wiradjuri elder who was kind enough to tell me to shut up and walk up the hill and just keep quiet for an hour or two just to listen. Not to him, just to the country. It made me personally realise about this connection to country that I can only imagine what it must be, but it made me realise how much I didn't know. Chris Andrew is the general manager of Black Duck Foods, a social enterprise founded by Indigenous elder Uncle Bruce Pascoe. Black Duck is on a mission to make native foods and Indigenous farming practices mainstream. As a non-Indigenous person who's on the worst part of the end of 50, I'm horrified at the lack of education 
and understanding and appreciation and, and my absolute ignorance for far too long in my own life. And that reflected poorly on myself. There's no excuse now. That information is now readily available. And there's an emerging awareness. You know, I think um, what Bruce Pascoe uh, demonstrated in Dark Emu is there's an awful lot we don't know. There was an awful lot of the narrative that was never acknowledged. The notions that he wrote about and revolutionised our thinking around display that it's an emerging truth. You know, here we, here we have a landscape that in a lot of areas we tried to turn into England. It doesn't work. You only need to look at the soils. You only need to look at what we do in terms of what we plant. And to plant that into the soils, we then have to spray it with a whole lot of poison. In terms of sustainable sectors, eating food that you've got to poison the soil to grow is might be not something that has a long-term future in the country. We ought to start going back to what worked here for thousands of generations what supported food systems for thousands of generations and perhaps something that's a little bit more climate tolerant, drought tolerant, uses 10% of the water required for species that have been imported into the country, something that works with fire, look at our land management practices. And there's an opportunity for that emerging awareness to take us back to what should be traditional agriculture in this country. It won't be something that everybody adopts. That's always the case. But I think with that emerging knowledge, there'll be people growing and emerging awareness of maybe opportunities there to treat their asset, the country on which they farm, more sympathetically and more productively, and in time, create healthier foods. And that healthy food is symbolic of a healthy country, healthy people, and healthy culture. And that's ultimately what an emerging understanding delivers for Australia. People on the land who haven't ever been exposed to that spiritual connection, can you talk a little bit about you know, why this is so important? I can't talk as a non-Indigenous person about that Indigenous connection to country. That, that, is, that is theirs and that's their yarn. And what I can make some observations as a non-Indigenous person that has been invited into this sector. And that spiritual connection from an individual perspective is one that you would have in terms of something that you're passionate about. And I would suggest that there's very few farmers out there who aren't passionate about the business that they're involved in. And it's about extending that passion to the greatest asset they've got, which is the country in which they undertake their activity. And that spirituality combines with understanding how that country responds back to the way that you treat it. Use that change in mindset to educate yourselves and educate those around you in terms of the opportunities for a new way of doing business that requires less input and eventually has a lot more opportunity to diversify against varieties of different weather risks and climate risks and diversify your own approach to your own asset. These are opportunities for a lot of people to rethink the way that they've been utilising their asset and maybe look at what the future might hold. And we, we see that already steaming through the Regen Ag movement. They, they've tapped into some of this. What's the first step that, that a landholder can take to start thinking in that, that more sympathetic way? You know, for people that are interested in this path, I think it always starts with a, with a conversation. Those conversations typically start with an invitation to sit down and have a yarn. And there's a, lot of, there's a lot of trust to be rebuilt in a lot of areas. 
but that's where it starts. So that's connections there. In doing that, you're investing in your own knowledge. You're investing in your own land. And if you're looking sort of financially, you're also looking at how do I de-risk my operation? And as I move my operation back to something that's um, got greater utility to the landscape that we've got, that's more drought resilient, that's more fire resilient, uh, that's more resilient to pest and pestilence, that's more resilient to the amount of inputs I've got to put into my land, then I'm actually, from a financial perspective, making myself more financially resilient. So some people might say, but you know, I might reduce some of my revenue. Yeah, but you may not reduce your margin. And then in terms of your risk rating with a bank, they're gonna look at you as a less risky proposition. And then your requirements for working capital become less because you've got less inputs. And so there's a greater opportunity to build more financially resilient farms. So from a business perspective, reducing your risk and without impacting your margins makes an awful lot of financial sense. Doing that in parallel to actually improving your own knowledge of the country in which you work, I think that's where your own well-being, your own connection to that country, to your asset, to your, to your work, to your livelihood becomes a lot healthier because now you have a greater appreciation and understanding. I don't have that, you know, thousand generation connection to Australia, but I feel better knowing that the work that Black Duck and other Aboriginal organisations do on country is healing that country. That gives me a greater sense of well-being, knowing that country is healed because country's being healed, people are being healed, and, you know, communities and cultures being healed. And that's that sense of purpose gives me a, a better sense of well-being. Josh Gilbert, I'm a Warramai man from the Big North Coast of New South Wales. Both parents are Aboriginal, both Warramai people, and this is home. I am a consultant for a large consulting practice and also I guess my ag involvement stems from beef cattle predominantly on my parents' property, but also more recently with my nan's property down near Canberra, uh, a sheep property down there. When we say whole farm, I kind of naturally go back to whole country and trying to read the landscape back prior to colonisation uh, and trying to understand the way the landscape was used and managed back then. One of the things I, I really worry about, I guess, when we think about farming is, you know, this is our fence and this is our boundaries and that's it. You know, it doesn't matter what's happening on the other side of the fence or even the narrative around, you know, looking over there and seeing if they're trying to do something better. But often we don't share across the boundary or say to our neighbours and sit down with them and try and work out how we can work better together on both sides. And for me, that's a really colonial understanding of land management. So if you think about the word agriculture or even colonisation, both of those very loosely mean to cultivate um, and there's this kind of natural progression of cultivation fencing and then livestock so you've got that kind of western view as to how agricultural moved and i guess through my eyes it's our role and responsibility as indigenous people to help uncolonize that kind of thinking but also really step back and say well how does our indigenous knowledge interweave with that and what has that adaptability been over the last 200 plus years to then think about what future agricultural systems look like. For me, one of the fears 
that I have in agriculture is that we have targets driven by farm gate values. So, you know, the National Farmers Federation have a 2030 target to try and increase farm gate production to $100 billion. And we have this massive target with a lot of doubt as to whether we'll ever meet it. But what it basically says is, is that we need to get more out of the land. My kind of lens on that is, well, actually, rather than saying, let's try and get more out of the land in a shorter period of time and, and do who knows what to it. How about we just say that we want farmers to farm better and to receive a better price for their products? And if that means that the price of food is more realistic, then I think that's only a good thing and that we need to actually come together and, and think about the agricultural system more than just a financial number, but actually think about how we sustain landscapes and people um, through a natural system. So maybe we need to work together and understand that regenerative farming combined with our indigenous farming system will actually increase production and that we'll have a lot more benefits out of that. So by by just having a number on it, I think is very um, risky because it, it just says we're focused on economics only. You know, when we think about whole farm planning, how do I bring that indigenous sensitivity and sympathetic understanding of landscape? How do I sort of start that? conversation that yarn i think you hit the nail on the head the yarn is the the important bit so if you're able to find local elders and actually start that conversation that's a really important aspect and and certainly even just the historical element of understanding where elders are from and and their journey and narrative and, and their connection to place is really important as well so really opening that dialogue and that conversation to actually really understand the landscape and, and listen to them. Knowing that you might not get everything as well, but be okay with that. Agriculture and the land is forgiving. So if you meet it 90% of the way, then you're quite a long way forward than where you were. The other thing I'd say is just give things time and there's this real rush to do things and you know we have to win out over nature and put something over the top of it and hope it works out. Obviously that's kind of transposed now with Regen Ag and other movements. By actually just giving things time to work out and, and the land is the same, we have a huge opportunity to connect better with it and to really understand it. This podcast has been produced by The Grow Love Project on behalf of Greater Sydney Local Land Services. The episode was mixed and edited by me, Edgar Greste, and the executive producer was Susanna Cable. Thanks to everyone who participated in the making of this episode. You can find out more about them in the show notes. And to listen to other episodes, make sure to subscribe to the podcast. And if you know someone who could benefit, please share it with them. Thanks for listening. <laughs>